Hello, and welcome back to the Whereas Hoops podcast. I'm Noah Cohan. And I'm John Early. And we are thrilled today to be joined by a basketball historian of great note and esteem, a really fun uh, online follow as well, Curtis Harris. Let me tell you a little bit about Curtis. Curtis M. Harris holds a PhD in American history from American University. His research has focused on the struggle for rights in the United States. Dr. Harris's recently completed dissertation, Hardwood Revolution, the NBA's Growth and Player Revolt, 1950 to 1976, examined one aspect of that struggle via the efforts of professional basketball players in the mid 20th century to secure their civil and labor rights. Since 2012, Curtis has managed Pro Hoops History, an independent blog and newsletter and Twitter account, I might add, focused on exploring the history and complexities of professional basketball in North America. Curtis's academic research has been presented at the North American Society for Sports History, and I'm excited to be hearing more of that research at uh, the American Studies Association conference this fall. And his popular work on basketball history has appeared at ESPN, Bleacher Report, Sporting News, and NPR. Welcome, Curtis. Yeah, thanks, Noah, uh, for that lengthy introduction. I, <laughs> I hate when people read off everything I've done. <laughs> <laughs> You've done a lot of great stuff. I, As I was saying before we hopped on this recording, Pro Hoops, Pro Hoops history is indispensable especially some, someone, uh, for someone like me with a bit of a nostalgia bent since my beloved Seattle Supersonics <laughs> no longer exist. Uh, John, do you follow Pro Hoops history? Uh, I do, actually. And Curtis, I was excited to see uh, your recent piece actually published in the Washington Post, too, um, about the NBA 75th anniversary, or, or as, as is the case, not so much 75th anniversary. Yeah, yeah, the fake anniversary. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that that's been a a thorn in my side for many many years now. So I was happy to actually have that published in a big outlet like the Washington Post. People to read that. Well, we'll break down the the differences between the BAA and the NBL. I hope as part of this podcast, and you can uh, explain to us um, why that fake anniversary is is so significant. But let's just start um, with a little background. I read your, your official bio, of course, but tell us a little bit about your connection to basketball and how studying it became an academic pursuit. Um, I don't know, I feel like basketball is kind of like television for me, where, or, you know, people of my age, at least, you know, uh, you know, like older generations, I guess like my grandparents, you know, they, they could probably remember the first time they saw, they watched television. Um, but for me, like, I don't remember the first time I saw television, like television was just always there. Uh, so basketball, kind of similar for me, like basketball was just always there. I don't remember like, oh, this is when I fell in love with basketball. Or this is when I started playing basketball. Uh, like it, that's just part of the family for me. Like my dad, he played in high school and um, had an offers to play in college, but they weren't great offers at like small schools. So he was like, yeah, it's like he's like, forget it. I'm good enough. I'll just, I'll just play like on the side. Uh, but he played basketball a lot. My brother and sister who are older than me, uh, they play basketball. Uh, so yeah, I just came up with basketball all around the family, and, um, tons of basketball cards in the house too. And I think that's how my interest in basketball history got started. Uh, cause my brother and sister, uh, my brother's four years older. My sister, uh, she is 12 years older. So much older than I am. Um, they had lots of basketball cards. And so I would just kind of like thumb through them and be like, Hey, here's like some guys I never heard before, like Sidney Moncrief and, uh, Jack Sigma and all these other people. And I was like, all right, 
read the cards, get a little history lesson on the back and stats and all that. Um, so as I got older, obviously I made it a little bit more, um, I guess more serious, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, so I started being like, you know, well, where did the NBA come from? Where did all these guys get started? And you know, just being a general lover of history, you know, after getting out of undergrad, uh, I decided to, yeah, more seriously study the subject. And uh, it, it's just revealed a lot of the um, just, just cool things uh, in my mind where you can study American history through something that's fun, like basketball. Uh, so as you know, my dissertation, the title kind of relates, you know, I talk about uh, business growth, uh, labor relations, race relations, uh, through using the NBA, uh, you know, as a lens, as the phrase goes, uh, as a lens to look at these larger social issues. So uh, that, that's kind of it in a nutshell, uh, how I kind of got into basketball and basketball history research. And you found a tremendous mentor in, in Teresa Runsettler, who I know from sports studies work. I would love to be a fly on the wall for your conversations about basketball history that, that I'm sure you two have some of the, the sort of coolest um, discourse on, on how we can think about these issues beyond just the, the, the conventional sports page way to frame them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And oddly um, for my master's degree, uh, I, I did that on the origins, like the creation of basketball. And my advisor for that uh, was Dan Kerr, who is the cousin of Steve Kerr, which I had no idea he was Steve Kerr's cousin <laughs> until like, uh, like maybe three months or not even three months, like uh, two months into my uh, uh, master's program. He's like, by the way, I'm Steve Kerr's cousin. So you ever want to try to interview him? I can like, <laughs> wow. I was like, that's all right, but it's good to know. So um, not even just Teresa, but also uh, Dan, another professor I've had. Um, he has shared lots of funny stories of being around the Cleveland Cavaliers in the 90s uh, <laughs> because of his cousin, Steve. So uh, those stories are probably more interesting to me and Teresa's because those are just more, um, more uh, just straight up basketball talk and less like the academic basketball talk. <laughs> Curtis, what has it been like uh, uncovering basketball history that, you know, most modern NBA fans and I would imagine quite a few coaches and players, maybe even front office staff, um, don't understand or just have no clue about? Yeah, I, let's see. I used to, uh, for five years, I worked as a, a consultant a contractor uh, for the 76ers uh, doing history work for them. And so... I can't speak about the players necessarily, like the actual players in the 76ers, because I never talked to them. Uh, but like the, I guess you'd say like the staffers, the office workers for the 76ers, they had no real knowledge of the history of the franchise uh, beyond like, you know, they're obviously around my age. I'm in my mid thirties. So they're like my age and younger for the most part. So their knowledge of the Sixers kind of started with Allen Iverson. They did like, if you were really smart, you knew about uh, like Maurice Cheeks and uh, if you're like expert, you remember the name Hal Greer. So like if you, like people like Julius Irving and Will Chamberlain, they knew the names, but they really know a lot about the actual player. Like their real uh, knowledge of basketball history was like Allen Iverson and going forward. So even people that work for NBA teams, I think don't have a great appreciation uh, for basketball history. Uh, then when it comes to fans and also journalists, because I spent a lot of time working as a, basketball journalists, uh, freelance, uh, just talking with other journalists. Like they also, generally speaking, uh, don't have a lot of just background on, on the history because they're focused on the day-to-day -day stuff. So like, you know, what's happening in the league right now, who's trying to get traded or, you know, what's the signing, what's the game action. So uh, understandably, they're not super versed in what happens before they actually got started with their basketball career or 
from their childhood. So like, you know, if you're a 40 year old journalist, you're really like your basketball history knowledge is like the 1980s and forward uh, at, at the best. Uh, so that's typical. Uh, very few journalists uh, from my experience know about, you know, 1970s, 60s, 50s, you know, like very, very few people know about that era of basketball history. Um, and the last thing I'll say about this is um, almost 10 years ago now, uh, I sent out a survey uh, when I wrote for the ESPN uh, True Hoop Network, uh, rest in peace. Uh, <laughs> when I sent out a, uh, just a survey for that, I was like, how many of you guys are uh, like, when do you guys think basketball started, like professional basketball? And most of them wrote down like 1940s and 1950s. And I was like, oh, Lord, like we got <laughs> we got some work to do. Uh, of course, it started in the 1890s. But like I'm like, all right, you guys right. are like 50 years off from when pro basketball started. That just kind of gives you a sense as to the not to use this word pejoratively, but just like the ignorance there is uh, around basketball history. Yeah, I mean, it's there's so much that I always am uncovering. I teach sports history classes and I'm just blown away what I learned before I, as I prep to teach the classes. And then my students, of course, don't even um, come close to that. You know, um, just uh, teaching uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's documentary about the Harlem Wrens is one of my favorite uh, units in any class because <laughs> they're just blown away that, you know, they've learned that the Globetrotters were from Chicago and <laughs> the Harlem Wrens yeah. are this different thing and they're named for the Renaissance ballroom, not a bird. And <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just fascinating to dig into all that stuff. Um, and I could nerd out asking you questions about Philadelphia basketball too, because I love the documentary uh, on Wilt's 100 point game and the thousands of people who claim to have been there in Hershey, Pennsylvania, when only like a hundred people were actually there. Uh, but we are a St. Louis focused uh, podcast. Um, we are uh, concerned with matters of uh, hoops in the gateway city. So if I can, I'm going to sort of steer us in that direction. Um, I guess I sort of took for granted that the, the sort of first major professional team in St. Louis was a uh, uh, a BAA and an NBA team called the Bombers, but maybe you know different. Maybe there's other professional sides you can tell us about. But um, whether you do or not, I, I, um, I'd love to hear about that. I'd love to hear about how this Bombers uh, team got started and what impacts or contribution they may have made to the NBA in their, or the BAA and then the NBA, which I think they were in for just one year, uh, what it might have been like. Yeah. Uh, so, to my knowledge, uh, the Bombers were the first, uh, you know, I guess we call it the first major uh, pro basketball team in St. Louis. Um, wouldn't be the least bit surprised if there were like smaller professional operations uh, in St. Louis because, you know, it was a big enough city and uh, basketball was around in that area. Pro basketball was around in that era, area uh, at that point. Uh, but the Bombers are definitely the first um, major uh, pro team to, and definitely the first one to play in the league uh, in St. Louis. Um and so well, that would be the Basketball Association of America, which started in 1946. And the Bombers were just like pretty much every other team in that league. Um, I think only the Philadelphia Warriors were the exception. Uh, and all, all the other ones were basically started by uh, hockey arena owners or people who had interest in uh, hockey arenas. Uh, so and St. Louis had to. Um, I think they were called the Flyers, uh, the St. Louis Flyers played in the American Hockey League. And so they played at St. Louis Arena. So the idea was just simply when the hockey team's not in town, we got a big empty stadium. Let's try to have a basketball team bring fans in to help, you know, pay for the upkeep of the stadium. Um, 
so yeah, this is basically a way to fill the seats and make more money. That's what the BAA was all about. So uh, the Bombers were not unique in that fashion. You had the Chicago Stags, uh, the Toronto Huskies, the New York Knicks, uh, Boston Celtics. They all got started the same year. Uh, in Be- As you can tell, these are big hockey cities. Uh, so trying to get people into these arenas uh, when the hockey team's not in town. Uh, so yeah, it was not a love of basketball that the Bombers uh, were created, uh, created for back in 1946. Uh, nonetheless, they were actually a pretty uh, successful team the first couple of years. Um, so I can't remember their exact record, but they were they finished second place in the Western Division uh, for the BAA their inaugural year, but got upset in the playoffs. So they lost, I think, in the first round. Second season, also pretty good. I think they also finished second place again and also got upset once again in the playoffs, uh, both times by the Warriors out of Philadelphia at that point. Uh, then the last two years, they, they kind of stunk. Uh, so the wheels kind of came off the wagon uh, for, the, for the Bombers. Uh, so from what I've read, the Bombers were actually going to fold uh, at the end of 1949, uh, the third and final year of the BAA. Uh, but the BAA and the National Basketball League, the NBL, uh, when they merged in August 1949, uh, the Bombers were like, well, let's try to give it a go for one more year. Didn't it hurt that Ed McCauley, a uh, local star out of St. Louis, uh, with St. Louis University. Um, so he was, he became a pro, and like thanks to the territorial draft, the Bombers got first dibs on him. So they tried to make it work for one more year, but they failed. They went broke. So uh, they lasted just one year to new NBA, and they folded uh, in 1950. So basically uh, their impact was just that they're kind of an example of what pro basketball was in that era. They didn't leave a lasting impact in St. Louis or uh, pro basketball at large, uh, I would say. Now the BAA was an all white league, right? That yeah. Uh, with the exception of Watt Nasaka, who played just three games for the Knicks and he was Japanese American. Uh, but yeah, every other player uh, was white uh, in the BAA. So no African-Americans yeah. in the league, uh, St. Louis uh, post-World War II, is a booming city, but a very segregated one. Um, you know, redlining is fully enforced. And so this is a, an entertainment featuring uh, white athletes for white people, more or less. Yeah. And, and that was pretty true across the BAA. But the NBL, as I understand, had a different history when it came to it. To yeah, race. the NBL was, you know, always make sure that I try to say that, uh, you know, the, the NBL was not a racial utopia. They weren't like running around like, we're trying like this was not their objective they were not trying to integrate american society and show that the races could get along uh but they were clearly more open to having black people play in their league so um so the nbl officially starts in 1937 but their predecessor was the midwest basketball conference so it sounds like a college operation but it was a pro uh pro league it lasted for two years and uh, one of their teams, the Buffalo Bisons, they uh, had Hank Williams, who was a black center. So he played for them in uh, 1935-36. Um, then in 1942-43, this is when the NBL is actually the NBL. Uh, two of their teams, the Chicago Studebakers and the Toledo, uh, this is a fun name, the Toledo Jim White Chevrolets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Taking a wild guess who the sponsor was of that team. Uh, so the... The Chevys and the, and the Studebakers, uh, those two teams, they did hire multiple black players. So it wasn't just one black guy on the team. They had multiple black players in each team uh, in the 42-43 season. And that was because of World War II. Uh, so many players were taken away to go serve in the military that they were just kind of desperate, had to hire anybody they could. 
Uh, so that's kind of integration out of desperation, which is often the case. Um, then in 1946, 47, uh, the Rochester Royals and Tri-Cities Blackhawks, so two teams that do eventually make it into the NBA, uh, they're in the NBL at this point, and both of them hired a black player. So the Royals got, uh, they had uh, William King, uh, William Dolly King, and then uh, the Blackhawks had uh, William Pop Gates. And so uh, eventually the Blackhawks, of course, become the St. Louis Hawks uh, down the line. So we'll, we'll get back to them. Uh, but they each had a black player in 1946-47. And then finally in 1948-49, uh, the New York Renaissance, who you mentioned earlier, Noah, uh, they joined the NBL. So he had an all-black team join the NBL for a whole season, uh, 1948-49. Uh, but to do so, they had to move to Dayton, Ohio. So <laughs> that's kind of the <laughs> – that's part of the deal. It's like you could join the NBL, but you got to move to Ohio because the NBL was in the, in the Midwest. So uh, they didn't want to kind of pay the expense to go out to New York City uh, to, to play that one team. The Rens are just a fantastic example for my students, because when we talk about the importance of Jackie Robinson and the drawbacks of, of integrating baseball, the way that it was integrated, obviously it had to be integrated. But the way that they did it, plucking away all the talent from the Negro leagues, the baseball leagues, um, the, the, the Rens present. Uh, kind of potential for an alternate history in which this yeah. all black team is folded into the NBA, right. With black ownership, even right. Um, that, that, that could have been a different model for integration that, that might have um, been less detrimental to these black businesses that were these um, uh, black leagues. Um, that, so that, that, that Wren's history is, is fascinating to me. So yeah. Yeah, the, the Blackhawks make it in the Royals make it in. What other, are there any other franchises from the NBL that, that yeah. Are uh, in the NBA? Yeah, I don't want to get too far in the weeds. It's like it, it gets a little bit convoluted, but let's see. Um, so obviously the NBL and the BA and the NBL was much stronger of the two leagues, uh, talent-wise and just steadiness, I'll say. Uh, but the BAA did have the big arenas and uh they were kind of desperate. So uh, in the at the end of the 1948 season, the BAA decided to essentially steal <laughs> four franchises from the NBL. Uh, so those four franchises were the Indianapolis Kowskis, who no longer exist. Uh, so don't worry about them. Uh, but then the other three, they're still around. Uh, the Fort Wayne Pistons, the Rochester Royals, and the Minneapolis Lakers. So they ditched the NBL for the BAA. Uh, but the BAA still struggles. Uh, the next year, 48-49. Um, so in 49-50, that's when they merged with the, uh, the NBL. And so – that's when more teams from the NBL joined the NBA uh, or joined what is now the NBA. Uh, the two most notable being the Syracuse Nationals and the Tri-Cities Blackhawks. Uh, so they're still around. Um, the Blackhawks, as I said, became the St. Louis Hawks and now are the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, the Syracuse Nationals are now the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, but initially the NBA had 17 teams. So you have a lot more teams from both the BAA and the NBL that were in the uh, initial NBA. So you had uh, like the Anderson, Anderson Packers from, uh, they're from Indiana. Uh, the Waterloo Hawks, completely separate from the St. Louis Hawks, which had a different franchise. The Waterloo Hawks in Iowa that were part of the NBA. Uh, you had the Denver Nuggets, completely different from the ABA Denver <laughs> Nuggets. But you see where these names are kind of brought back uh, to mm -hmm. this franchise. So you had the, the original Denver Nuggets. Uh, they were part of the NBL, and then they joined the NBA for that first season. So, 17 franchises total, but by 1955, uh, you know, like St. Louis Bombers, the Chicago Stags, those original Nuggets, uh, the Anderson Packers, the Waterloo Hawks, 
they all, in one, one way or another, go bankrupt. So by 1955, you only have eight teams left. Um, so, yeah, five of them were originally from the NBL, three of them originally from the BAA. So that's, that's kind of the short, uh, short and sweet kind of history of the, the merger there. So, Curtis, you mentioned the Tri-City Hawks, um, Blackhawks becoming the Hawks, coming to St. Louis. Of course, the Hawks, when they were here in town, had a really remarkable run of success uh, in the 50s and the early 60s, going to multiple NBA finals, winning their one and only uh, for the franchise against uh, Bill Russell's Celtics, which can get into Bill Russell and why he maybe wasn't a Hawk <laughs> from the get-go. Um, how did that success come about for the Hawks upon their coming to St. Louis? And how were they able to build uh, the strength of team that they did during that time? Yeah, so uh, so something I, I just want to, I'll just back it up to kind of get the train of events, how to get to St. Louis. So, all right, sorry, listeners, but you'll probably get confused again. So there was a, that Buffalo Bison franchise I mentioned a few minutes ago that had Hank Williams in the mid-30s. They folded. They went bankrupt back in back during the Great Depression. A new franchise called the Buffalo Bisons uh, was created in 1946 in the NBL. Uh, they were co-founded by Ben Kerner and Leo Ferris. Um, so they did not do too well in Buffalo. Like literally after 10 games, they left Buffalo to go to Moline, Illinois, and become the Tri-Cities Blackhawks. So that's the same year that they had Pop Gates, uh, that black player, uh, playing for them. Uh, and then uh, Leo Ferris, uh, co-owner of the Haw uh, the Blackhawks, uh, he's the guy that helped make the NBA merger happen and also went on to make the shot clock. So he's also a really important figure uh, for basketball history and is amazingly not in the Basketball Hall of Fame. That's a whole other podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, but Leo Ferris, he sold his shares of the franchise so, uh, to Ben Kerner. So Kerner becomes the sole owner of the Blackhawks after the NBA merger. Um, but the uh, Tri-Cities area, you know, they did well enough there, but their writing was kind of on the wall, and I haven't found this evidence yet, but based on other, other teams I've read about, uh, like the Rochester Royals and um, the Waterloo Hawks and um, the Anderson Packers and Sheboygan Redskins, those are all NBA teams. But I found evidence that the NBA basically pressured those teams to either relocate, like the Royals going to Cincinnati, or just basically pushed them out entirely, like the Waterloo Hawks. Uh, I suspect that Ben Kerner got a little push in the butt, you know, like, hey, you need to like get to a bigger, bigger uh, metro area. Moline, mm -hmm. Illinois is not going to cut it. So he goes to Milwaukee first and just shortens the name to the Milwaukee Hawks because, you know, the Waterloo Hawks are now gone. So he can just shorten it up to the Milwaukee Hawks at that point. Uh, but initially, things went well enough in Milwaukee. Uh, but then Major League Baseball moved in with the Milwaukee Braves and like, Everybody in Milwaukee went from like, oh, we're going to try to support basketball. It's like, oh, my God, we have Major League Baseball. All the focus went to Major League Baseball. So I think the Hawks lasted in Milwaukee for, I think, for only two or three seasons. But luckily for them, uh, they drafted Bob Pettit uh, the last year they were in Milwaukee. So uh, without him, I don't think that franchise lasts uh, much longer because uh, they do relocate now to St. Louis after Milwaukee fails. Uh, but I think they might have gone belly up, you know, after a couple of years in St. Louis, if not for Bob Pettit being such a good player and being able to elevate the franchise uh, to where fans do want to go see the product that they, they're putting out on the court. So, um, so yeah, you, you, you can thank Bob Pettit for keeping the team afloat uh, th those first few years uh, in St. Louis. Uh, but they did get really good really quick, though, because uh, 
the first year in uh, St. Louis, I think was uh, 55-56. And then the second year in St. Louis, they do make the NBA Finals thanks to uh, a big trade with, with involving Bill Russell. But uh, there were lots of important players involved in that trade, not just Bill Russell uh, for basketball history. Well, let's let's jump into that right now. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the ramifications, potential ramifications for alternate timelines for St. Louis basketball and even sort of <laughs> race relations. But um, but so tell, take us into that trade. What happens? Yeah. Um, you know, Auerbach's got his eye on on Russell and makes the trade happen. I've read accounts that sort of suggest that the the, the Hawks sort of were uh, strong armed by him. But but I don't know the real history. You, you tell us about it. Uh, they weren't strong armed. Uh, they just. So the Hawks, as I said, you know, they were they were decent. Uh, like they did, they did make the playoffs their first year in St. Louis, uh, but they had a losing record. So um, I think they had the second pick. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure they had. The, I know they. Uh, the, I know the Rochester Royals had the first pick in that draft, mm-hmm. uh, and I think the Hawks had the second pick. Uh, and so the Celtics, by this point, like the so the Boston Celtics, uh, they had been a successful franchise, but of course hadn't won a championship yet, uh, and they did get. Just, I love the intertwined, the, the intertwined history of Boston and St. Louis uh, in this era. So when the St. Louis Bombers folded back in 1950, there was a dispersal draft, and Ed McCauley winds up going to the Boston Celtics. So the St. Louis native is off in Boston for like the next uh, six or seven years. Great team with McCauley, Bob Cousy, and Bill Sharman. But by 1956, Red Arback, who had used to be the coach of the Tri-Cities Blackhawks, is now the coach of the Boston Celtics. So he had worked for Ben Kerner and uh, did not get along with Ben Kerner. He's now the head coach in Boston. He's kind of realized that this team is good, but not good enough to win a title because Ed McCauley, great center, but just he's not strong enough on defense or the boards. He's a great offensive center, but we need defense and rebounding. Well, the St. Louis Hawks are like, well, we're a decent team. We got Bob Pettit, but we need better players. Uh, maybe Bill Russell is the player that can get them over the top, but they already had a strong rebounder in Bob Pettit. So Ben Kerner's like, I don't need Bill Russell. I need uh, more scoring. I need more. Uh, I need better players on offense to help round out uh, Bob Pettit's skills. So the Celtics wanted Russell real bad, but we're not going to be high enough in the draft because they were too good of a team. Um, and the Rochester Royals thought about drafting Russell, but Russell in his own autobiography says that he kind of uh, deep six, <laughs> as he called it, because he told the Royals owner, like, I'm going to want this much money, so you're not going to be able to afford me. So the Royals owner's like, yeah, we're not going to be able to afford you. So they moved on and drafted uh, Sai Hugo Green. Uh, Future St. Louis Hawks, Sai Hugo Green. Uh, (laughs) But uh, so Red Arback calls up Ben Kerner and is like, all right, look, we want Bill Russell. You really don't have a need for him. We'll trade you Ed McCauley for Bill Russell. Straight up trade of centers. And Red's thinking, like, I'm also doing you a favor because, like, Ed McCauley's from St. Louis. He'll draw fans into the arena. And also, unfortunately, Ed McCauley, uh, I forget, I think one of his children had, I think it was spinal meningitis. So uh, so Ed McCauley was also like, I want to move back to St. Louis to be with my kid who has his medical problem. Um, so Red thought that makes sense. But Ben Kerner's like, yeah, you know, make even more sense if he also gave us the rights to uh, Cliff Hagen, uh-huh. <laughs> who the Celtics had drafted a couple years earlier, but was in the military. So was about to join the NBA for the first time. And Red Auerbach was really pissed off about this. He's like, you know, this is highway robbery. You don't deserve Macaulay and Hagen for Bill Russell. Like, this is like two great players for one. So Red had called up one of his old players. Uh, God, who was it? Uh, uh, he played for him at the Washington Caps. This is killing me. Whatever. It's not important. His name's not important. 
Fred Scolari, that's who it was. So he called up Fred Scolari, one of his old players, and Fred Scolari lived in California where Bill Russell played college. And Scolari told Fred, uh, excuse me, told Red, um, it's like, Red, basically, and like I'm paraphrasing here, but it's like, Red, don't piss around on this. Like, Russell is the greatest basketball player I've ever seen play. So, like, whatever he's asking, give it up. Russell is worth the trade. So Red caved in, gave up Macaulay and Hagan, got Bill Russell. Um, and, yeah, as it turns out, the Hawks and Celtics became the two best teams in the NBA for, like, the next five years and battled in the finals uh, four times. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think Ben Kerner was ever going to draft Bill Russell. I don't think he – I don't think it was for racial reasons. Uh, I just think that he didn't want Bill Russell because Russell was known at that point as a defensive player, a uh, rebounder, and that's not what the Hawks uh, wanted or needed at that point. They needed uh, just more bodies but also more scorers on the team. Cy Hugo Green is such a great name. Everyone yes, knows <laughs> Sam Bowie. Why don't we know Cy Hugo Green the same way? I mean, that's, that's recency bias, I guess. Um, <laughs> recency, yeah. <laughs> um, 30 years ago from the one. <laughs> that's right. Well, I'm, 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 you know, your age roughly. So <laughs> yeah. Jordan, Jordan history is like, you know, written in stone on my forehead. All right. Um, so let's, so. Another piece of this, right, we can talk about the Russell counter history that I love to imagine of Russell in mm -hmm. St. Louis and what he would have done given the civil rights activist that he was. Yeah. But I also want to think about the, that championship team. They, they mm -hmm. overcome Russell. It's 58, I think. 57, yeah, 58. 58. They overcome Russell, and it, no one really notices that, this at the time, but obviously since then it's become really notable. It's the last all-white championship team in NBA history. So, so first give us the, if you can, the yeah. sort of um, blow by blow of how they managed to beat Russell, which is no small thing. I think he won titles in 11 out of his 13 seasons. So like, mm -hmm. this is not a thing that you could just casually do. Uh, and then also like this historical footnote and, and what, what, how it might matter for NBA history in your view. And, and then, you know, knowing what you do know about St. Louis, you know, what, how do you think it might resonate in the history of St. Louis? Yeah. Well, Again, I don't want to um, say I don't want to paint like, you know, Ben Kerner as being like, you know, more racist than the other NBA owners. Like, I just think the team happened to be all white that particular year because the Hawks did have black players before that year. Uh, they had. Um, I think it was the 55, 56 season. They did have Chuck Cooper, uh, who was the first black player drafted in the NBA, and he had played for the Celtics previously, too. So and also, you know, as I said, they had Pop Gates a decade earlier uh, when they were in the NBL. Um, mm -hmm. So. And it's not like same ownership, but in a different city. Yeah, same ownership, different city. Yeah, it's not like Ben Kerner's like, I don't want black players on my team. Right. Uh, so he had black players before, just that, that one year the team happened to be all white. Uh, but that's also not to say that, you know, Kerner, I don't think, was unaware of the racial dynamics. It's like no NBA team at that point had any more than three or four black players. Uh, I think the Royals had the most with uh, four black players uh, that season. Um, and also remember that the – Syracuse Nationals in 1955, they were the first NBA champion with black players. So the Nationals had black players in 55, they had two. Uh, 56, the Philadelphia Warriors won the title. And I think they didn't have any black players on their team at that, that, that year. Uh, then in 57, the Celtics only had Bill Russells. They only had one black player. And then in 58, the Hawks have no black players. So it's not like this is like unusual at that point. Mm -hmm. um, did not have any black players on the NBA champion. But I definitely think that uh, based on what you see happening in the 60s going forward, that like uh, St. Louis fans wouldn't have been like, you know, ecstatic to have like a bunch of black players on their team, especially one like Bill Russell, who would get more vocal about uh, 
racial politics. Uh, you know, but Russell wasn't particularly vocal in 57 or 58. Like he would express himself, uh, but it was, he was getting more expressive. He wasn't like the, the firebrand civil rights activist Bill Russell that we even thought of in like 1962, uh, 1956 and 57. He's not that uh, just yet. So if he had been on the Hawks, I don't think the fans would have had a problem like with, oh, we have a black player being the second or first best player, depending on what you think about Bob Pettit at that point. But like our best or co-best player is uh, black. I don't think they would have been too troubled by that. But um, if he had been talking about civil rights at that point, I think there would have been uh, some issues. Because uh, <laughs> there were even issues in Boston when Brussels started talking about civil rights. Uh, so St. Louis definitely would have had uh, issues because, um, who was it? Um, Earl Lloyd, uh, who played for the Syracuse Nationals, uh, he wrote in his uh, biography, autobiography, that most NBA cities were pretty good enough to get around in, except for St. Louis. Like he singled out St. Louis as like the city that was the pain in the butt for black players to go to uh, in that era. Because it was like the Southern city for the NBA at that point. Because mm-hmm. you had Minneapolis, uh, Fort Wayne, and then Detroit, Philadelphia, New York, Boston. So like, not to say that the black players had an easy time in these areas, but it was a lot easier than St. Louis. Um, and Lloyd would talk explicitly about how like St. Louis was like, he's like, yeah, hey, like Syracuse had racial problems, but he's like, when you went to St. Louis and came back to Syracuse, you're like, well, at least Syracuse is not St. Louis. Uh, so I think that kind of sums up uh, sure. how black players felt about playing in St. Louis back in that era. Yeah. I mean, you know, not to let these other places off the hook, you know, yeah. you know, Russell called Boston the flea market of races, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, St. Louis famously the Chase Park Plaza hotel, which still exists. So one of the fanciest hotels in St. Louis was notorious for trying to restrict Jackie Robinson first by not letting him stay there with the white players on his team. Then by saying he could stay there, but not use the pool. And the story goes that Robinson then went immediately to the pool as soon as he checked in. Um, and, you know, Arthur Ashe lived here for a year at the end of his high school career and called it one of those most miserable places <laughs> to live as a, as a black man and as a black athlete specifically. So, um, you know, I, I, I take your point about the sort of, uh, sort of accidental nature of the 58 Hawks being the last all-white championship team. But I also think there's something so symbolic about it being attached to St. Louis, this city that has such a fraught racial history, especially, you know, surrounding uh, sport and integration in sport. Um, And then to have Marvin Barnes, who we'll get to in a moment, the spirits, and then no basketball at the professional level since then. I think that the the Hawks being the last all-white champions is kind of symbolically important uh, for the hoops history of, of this town. Yeah, but can you tell uh, us, just to backtrack a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about how Bob Pettit actually beat Bill Russell? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 no. I can't yeah. imagine this happening. Yeah, I was about to get to that. I was like, yeah, I was like, but I forgot to tell you about the NBA <laughs> Finals. So actually, uh, the, so the the battles between those two teams were like just uh, the Celtics and the Hawks. I think it's such a shame that like that just kind of gets papered over in NBA history. So um, the NBA doesn't even like acknowledge that it ever happens in any of their like, you know, promotional material. Uh, But uh, so let's start with the 57 finals, which I think is like, you know, that's up there for maybe the best finals ever played because it was the seven game series. The in the game one was a double overtime victory for the Hawks. 125, 123 over the Celtics. And then game seven was a double overtime victory for the Celtics over the Hawks, 125, 123. So it's like wow. ridiculous that the game one and game seven had the exact same score in double overtime, but the victor was flipped. So mm. 
Uh, so, like, those teams were clearly neck and neck as to who was the best in the NBA that year. Like, um, you play one minute longer, the Hawks might have come out on top and won that series. Um, and Russell had um, 18 points and 32 rebounds to game seven. Uh, Tommy Heinsohn, he was also a rookie that year for the Celtics. Um, he had something like um, – oh, it's going to kill me. He had something like 30 points and 20 rebounds uh, as a rookie in that, in that game seven. So that like never gets talked about among the great finals performances. And then uh, Bob Pettit had something like 40 points and 20 rebounds in that game. So these guys are like trading body blows all night mm-hmm. long. Uh, then the next year in 58, the Hawks get their revenge in six games. Now Celtics partisans will be like, well, Bill Russell had a twisted ankle. And so he wasn't hundred percent in that series. I'm <laughs> like, I was like, do y'all want to go through how many like lucky breaks Bill Russell got for the rest of his career with uh, other teams having guys get hurt? Um, so it's not to take away from Bill Russell, but it's like there are other series where Bill Russell won. It's like, thank God the other team wasn't at full strength. Like uh, just off the top of my head, uh, the 68 playoffs, uh, the 76ers, I think had the better team that year, but Billy Cunningham broke his wrists in the playoffs. So they didn't have Billy Cunningham. So the Sixers mm-hmm. lost in seven games to the Celtics. So it's like, that's Bill Russell getting a championship that he maybe should have gotten in 58. So don't cry. Don't shed too many tears, but <laughs> Uh, but in 58, the Hawks, uh, they went in in six games and Bob Pettit, uh, again, one of the great finals performances that never gets talked about, uh, had 50 points to, to win that game. And if I remember right, he had, uh, I think it was 19 of the last 21 points for the Hawks. So it was basically like, here, Bob, here's the ball. Like, carry us, take us to the promised land. So he scored 19 of St. Louis's last 21 points wow. uh, on his way to 50 total for the game uh, to win the series for the, uh, for the Hawks. And then, uh, and then they played two more times in the finals, uh, six, 1960, the Hawks losing seven games again to the Celtics. Uh, then in 61, they, they get beat pretty bad. The Celtics, uh, by that point, are really the much better team. So they, they, they beat them in five games, I think, in 1961. And that's the last time the Hawks uh, made the finals. Because Bob Pettit's uh, sort of skills eroded a bit? Or is there... Uh, a- no, 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 just... No, Pettit was still great in 61. Um, it was the uh, it was the players around him. Uh, so like, so a real important player for the early Hawk, the great Hawks teams was Slater Martin, uh, who played point guard. Uh, and he was he was a veteran when he joined the team because he played for the Lakers prior to that. Uh, so he was in his I think early thirties when he got to the Hawks. So by nineteen sixty one, I think that was his last year in the league. Uh, Slater Martin, he was a shell of himself. So he was uh, at the end of his rope. Ed McCauley had retired before the, uh, by that year. Uh, he retired I think in nineteen fifty nine. So McCauley was gone. Uh, so it was just kind of like an atrophy of the good players they had in the late 50s. So by 61, it was just uh, Pettit and Cliff Hagen, who were the really great players uh, on the team. Although they did have Clyde Lavellet, who is a Hall of Fame player, but he was all offense, no defense. So uh, <laughs> love to Chuck. So it's like, all right, he'll give us 20 points, but he might give up 30 on the other end. So um, <laughs> so like he'd have the right team around Clyde Lavellet uh, to make him work, but they didn't have it in 61. Do you have any sense of what the, the audience was like for the Hawks in St. Louis? I mean, I gather they were playing in St. Louis Arena and they were really good. So probably they you know, drew pretty good crowds. But do you have actually, any sense of that? Actually, this is a big thing. Uh, they, they did not play in St. Louis Arena, the Hawks. Hmm. Uh, they, they played at, um, what's the auditorium? Um, Keel Auditorium. Keel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah they, they played in Keel Auditorium. So the Hawks did not play in St. Louis Arena, oddly. So the St. Louis Bombers and the Spirits of St. Louis, they both played in St. Louis Arena. But the Hawks, I don't know the reason why, they played in Keel Auditorium. So they had a uh, they had a smaller cap on the crowd size, but they had bigger crowds than either of those other teams. 
Mm. Uh, they made for a unique uh, setup where the teams played on the stage at the auditorium uh, in these playoff games. So, but uh, but nonetheless, the audience still, um, I think it's safe to say, was a primarily white crowd that would go see the the Hawks play. And uh, as the '60s progressed and the team got blacker, um, so all right, let me pause here. So '61, the Hawks lost in the finals to the Celtics. So, and then in 62, they missed the playoffs entirely. So like, clearly they need to do a rebuild. Uh, so the rebuild, the only wide players, significant wide players you had at that point were um, Bob Pettit and Cliff Hagen, who are both getting older. Uh, and then also they had traded for Richie Guerin, um, who would later on become the player coach of the Hawks. So those are like the three main wide players. But then the other good players to start, good players to start bringing in are all black. So Bill Bridges, uh, Lenny Wilkins, Zelmo Beatty, um, later on Joe Caldwell. So you're getting like these really good players, but they're all black. And then like 1966, you know Bob Pettit is retired, and I think Cliff Hagen also retired that year. So it's just Richie Guerin, who's also getting older at this point. He's the only good white player on the team, and now all the good players are black and. The team is really good at this point again. They don't make the finals, but they're still a really good team now. And surprisingly, the fans stopped showing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, why is that? It yeah. seems to be that it's because the team was getting too black, uh, in the opinion of the fans. Curtis, you mentioned the, the spirits, and this is a good time, I think, to discuss them with kind of mm-hmm. the Hawks <clears throat> drawing lower, um, you know, attendance, as you talked about, um, you know, mid to late 60s, moved to Atlanta in 68. Um, and then Pro Hoops is absent from St. Louis until 74, uh, when the Carolina Cougars moved to town, become the spirits of St. Louis. They're only here for two seasons. Um, was wondering what you could tell us about uh, that period in St. Louis basketball history. Um, the spirits, the ABA, of course, with uh, Marvin Barnes and his kind of outsized impact on the, the team and the league uh, as well. Yeah, um, yeah. St. Louis is, seems like one of those graveyards for pro basketball. Uh, mm. Sorry, sorry to say that on the, on the podcast. But no, <laughs> fact, historical facts are historical facts. Uh, outside of like the Bob Pettit years with the Hawks, uh, everything else seems to be just like really hard to make it work in St. Louis for pro basketball. So, uh, yeah, like in '67, I think it was uh, Ben Kerner basically decided like I got to cash out, and he doesn't sell the team till the next year, '68. And for him, basketball was his only business for Ben Kerner. So he wasn't like one of these rich guys had a side business. Like basketball was his business. So by 68, the cost of running a pro, like any professional team in football, baseball, basketball, was just escalating dramatically. So he kind of gets out, sells, uh, makes a couple million in the process. So don't weep for him. Uh, But (laughs) the ABA starts coincidentally the same year, 1968. Uh, so as you said, the Carolina Cougars, um, they eventually become an ABA team, uh, and they were a regional franchise in Carolina. That's why they're Carolina Cougars. So they played in Greensboro, Charlotte, and Raleigh. They had home games in all three of those cities, but that model starts to fail. Uh, they have financial pr- troubles. Uh, so yeah, they moved to St. Louis. I think it's, um, 74, um, and Joe Caldwell is a member of the team. So he gets to go back to St. Louis. Uh, <laughs> imagine how happy he was about that. Um, <laughs> but uh, Joe Caldwell, uh, Pogo Joe, great athlete, uh, fantastic. Uh, just got one, a great basketball player. Um, but yeah, the, the Hawks, they, or excuse me, the Hawks, uh, the Cougars go to St. Louis, become the spirits under the ownership of the Silna, Silna brothers. Uh, and they're 
interesting because they tried to buy the Detroit Pistons, I think a year or two earlier, uh, but they were too stingy on the prices. Um, they wanted to pay like four and a half million dollars for the Pistons. Uh, the, the Pistons owners were like, sorry, that's too little. We're going to go elsewhere. And they got eight million dollars the next year for somebody else. Um, so the buying the Cougars was a steal for the Silner brothers. So uh, they got it for, I think, like uh, one point five million dollars. So they move them to St. Louis, become the Spirits. So they have Joe Caldwell on the team already. Then they, they get Marvin Barnes to just too many stories to remember or even tell on this podcast, <laughs> the colorful tales from Marvin Barnes. Um, the Rolls Royce, I think it's the one that sticks out with me. He's just, mm-hmm. um, one of the stories was his girlfriend uh, crashed his Cadillac and he was he, he went out and scored six points that game. So like um, <laughs> it's like the owner of the, uh, not the owner, but like the general manager of the Spirits. It's like, we're paying Marvin Barnes like $2 million over his contract. Why the hell is he only scoring six points? And I think the coach was like, well, you know, he had a great warm-up. But then, like, he got a phone call between the warm-ups and then the game starting. And the phone call said, hey, Marvin, your car got totaled, your Cadillac. And so, like, Marvin was distraught and had six points that game. But then the guy was the, then the general manager was like, well, you know what? The next day he went out and bought a Rolls Royce to replace the, the Cadillac. So uh, that kind of explains Marvin Barnes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you weep for the Cadillac scoring six points and then you go out and buy a Rolls Royce. Uh, and then there's the disappearance of Marvin Barnes where he just like vaporized for a, <laughs> a couple weeks because he was unhappy with his contract and they blamed Joe Caldwell for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Caldwell got banished from the franchise. Uh, that led to a whole legal saga uh, where he didn't get his contract fully paid out. Um, and he is still rightfully so still bitter about that. Joe Caldwell uh, with, the, with the spirits. Um, and then there's one other thing. Oh, this is much less important than the, the contract. Uh, Marvin Barnes, the time machine uh, anecdote. Where, oh, my God. Do y'all know about the time machine? I don't think so. Oh, my God. So they had a game. The Spirits had a game in Kentucky against the Kentucky Colonels. So they had to, uh, they played it in Louisville, Kentucky, which is in the eastern time zone. Mm-hmm. And then they, they were flying back to St. Louis, which is in the central time zone. But the flight is so short that – between the time they took off and landed, they would actually be earlier uh, in St. Louis than it was mm-hmm. in Louisville. <laughs> and Marvin Barnes is like, I'm not getting on no time machine. It's <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like, like I, don't, I'm, I don't remember the exact times, but it's like, we're going to leave Louisville at 10 p.m. and get back to St. Louis at like 9.50 p.m. And Marvin Barnes is like, this makes no sense about getting on a time machine. It's, it's like, they tried to like, Marvin, it's a time zone difference. So like, the time, the clock goes back an hour. It's like, it's not a time machine. Um so those are like the funny stories of Marvin Barnes. Uh, yeah. just unfortunately, the stuff uh, where he eventually got hooked on drugs, uh, which is you know sad and did prison time. Um, and then, of course, sadly died a few years ago. Uh, but yeah, we don't have time on this podcast to go over the wild tales right. of Marvin Barnes. Yeah, so that's just I, a few. <laughs> yeah, anyone who's interested, uh, the documentary Free Spirits, uh, 30 for 30, about the spirits of St. Louis is great. Bob Costas was the play-by-play announcer, yeah. which is fascinating. There's all kinds of minutiae. But I do want to linger on Barnes for like another minute, just mm-hmm. because, you know, Barnes is a little kooky. He's prodigiously talented. Yeah. But he's also sort of unapologetically black, you know, like yes. at this time, he's got the, the sort of fur coats, the 70s black male fashion, you know, the kind yeah. of thing that Walt Clyde Frazier was also doing, um, but maybe even more so. Um, and, and this is in St. Louis with its, uh, you know, sort of deep segregation and um, uh, race problems. And also the other thing that happened sort of right as the, the Hawks were losing is um, the NHL comes to town and all of a sudden there's this successful NHL franchise um, with, you know, a team full of white athletes um, excelling on the St. Louis sports scene. So how, do, how can we figure 
that the sort of unapologetic blackness uh, and, and excellence of Marvin Barnes into this sort of racialized landscape of, of sports. Well, yeah, I mean, I told you earlier, like, you know, he totaled or his girlfriend totaled his fancy Cadillac and then he goes out and buys a Rolls Royce. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, how many people in St. Louis, black or white, had a Rolls Royce? Uh, right. It's Marvin Barnes, I think you can count them on one hand. It's like Marvin Barnes, maybe like three, four of the people. Um, and yeah, like, he, he, it wasn't just that he was unapologetically black, but also he was kind of... Um, just reckless in his behavior. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think any black person who like, you know, was unapologetically black and just like, I'm going to do my thing uh, would have uh, caused a problem in St. Louis at that point, or at least we maybe would have turned off fans. They had terrible attendance at the spirits games. Like Bob Costas, he said like, we got no, no more than two or 3000 fans a game mm. uh, on good nights in St. Louis. Um, uh, except for that one great playoff run they had where they upset the New York Nets. Uh, they had Julius Irving. Uh, Bob Costas is like, that was a great night. We had like 7,000 people in St. Louis. Arena. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like, you can hold a lot more than 7,000 people, but that was a great night for them. Um, but, but no, Marvin, um, not just being unapologetically black, as I said, but also being recklessly, uh, just being a reckless person. So it's like, oh, no, he does he have the Rolls Royce, but like he's not showing up to work. Cause like he did disappear from the team for a couple of weeks uh, or the drug issue. So like he would, right. if he did show up for a game, he would not show up on time for the game. So like, even if you were like a, like that, like I can see how that would turn off any fan, like just to have like your star player not show up on time for the games. Now add on to it, the fact that he was, you know, this black player in a city that uh, let's say is not very amenable to having a black mm-hmm. star like that. Um, yeah. That, that definitely would kind of torpedo the chances of the spirits uh, surviving, uh, for in any long term, Um, and, and it's, and they had some really good talent on that team too. Cause like, it wasn't just Marvin. They had, uh, Maurice Lucas, uh, also unapologetically black, but much more structured than Marvin Barnes, uh, Maurice <laughs> Lucas. Um, uh, they also had Freddie, uh, Freddie Lewis, um, great, great basketball player. Uh, but so all the great players on the team don't wear black. So that's another issue that we can get into like the, like the, you know, St. Louis blues, like, like most hockey teams, all white. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spirits of St. Louis, sure, they upset the New York Nets in the playoffs, shockingly, and almost got to the ABA finals, but it's a team of all black players, uh, essentially. Like, I don't, I can't recall any white player on that team. Uh, right. So, and the Blues, it should be noted, because of the way the NHL did expansion, they just made all kinds of new teams and put them all in one conference, the Western Conference, which was much weaker yes. than the East. So the Blues made the finals like every year. They never won. They always got crushed, but they were always advancing deep, deep into the playoffs. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that you just say about Barnes, and thank you for pointing this out, is like the way stereotypes work, this, this famous black man who's doing these activities, some of which are sort of legally questionable or morally questionable, <laughs> a lot of people, you know, they're going to use that as a stereotype against all black people. That's yeah. the way that, that racial stereotypes work. Yeah. So yeah like a, Marvin, like Marvin was clearly the, the reckless guy, plus him and Fly, Fly Williams as another character. Uh, mm-hmm. Those two are clearly like the ones that are kind of like the, the outlandish, you want to call it that. But like, again, like Freddie Lewis, Maurice Lucas, uh, Steve Snapper Jones, like these are, consummate professionals who will show up and do their job and like clock in and clock out, do what they're supposed, what they're mm-hmm. supposed to do on the court. Uh, and they're, they are star players like Freddie Williams, or excuse me, Freddie Lewis, uh, all-star game MVP for the ABA in 1975. Um, Maurice Lucas was an all-star as well. And then will, you know, mm-hmm. be an all-star in the NBA, won a title with the trailblazers in the NBA. Like he, he can't doubt his bona fides and his professionalism, but uh, yeah, Marvin Barnes provides an excuse to not, you know, tune into the spirits because, you know, he's the wild guy leading the team and he can't show up to work on time, even though everybody else is. So, yep. 
Snapper Jones, I always think of the 90s NBC, NBA and NBC broadcasts with Bill Walton. And I think, was it Marv was the play-by-play on with those? Usually, teams? yeah, it was either Marv or... Um, Did Costas take it sometimes? Costas also was with them for a few times. Yeah. Now, whenever Steve and Walton were together, that was a... <laughs> oh, that, man, that, that, that music oh i'm right in my sonics uh, heyday uh, anyway this is not a pod about the sonic all right so so the aba collapses and yeah. as the spirits of Saint, uh, free spirits documentary details the silna brothers really want into the nba they're mm-hmm. locked out but they get a, a golden parachute that pays off <laughs> hugely because they get a cut of nba tv re- uh, revenues until what like a decade ago for so for some like 30 some years they get this massive amount of money for doing nothing but the basketball scene at the the professional level in st louis remains barren ever since since 1976 are there any attempts that you know of since 76 serious attempts to get the nba back to st louis and if not why not yeah i don't think like this very vaguely in my mind I remember something in the 1980s when the NBA was again contemplating expansion, which they did, of course, you know, with the Minnesota Timberwolves and Miami Heat and all those teams in the late 80s. Um, I think St. Louis, like, again, this is like very vague in my head. Like, I think there's the idea St. Louis might try to get back in on it, but I don't think it was too serious. Like the NBA, I think was like, we're, we're done with St. Louis. Um, and St. Louis had kind of proven itself to be the, you know, they love the Cardinals. They love the Blues. Like even pro football <laughs> didn't survive mm-hmm. in St. Louis. It was like, Mm-hmm. Shoot, pro football doesn't make it in St. Louis. Like they, they really love their two, their two teams. Uh, but uh, I think something to also think about is the fact that um, in the seventies and eighties, you did have the Kansas City Kings too on the other end of the state. Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. like that, that kind of big, like the larger market you, you can say was kind of occupied by the Kings out west in uh, Kansas City, and also the Bulls in Chicago by that point. So. Uh, any kind of territory to fit in uh, another NBA team was kind of taken up by those two franchises uh, in St. Louis in the late seventies and uh, up through the mid eighties. So when the Kings went to Sacramento, eventually, I think in 84, um, yeah, like the the NBA had no interest in trying to go back to St. Louis. They were just like, yeah, no, we, we've tried you twice before. And also there was the ABA attempt and that didn't work either. So like, they're just done with St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Um, nor do I think there's any real interest in St. Louis in trying to get pro basketball back anyways. NBA League Pass thinks that our local teams are the Pacers and the Grizzlies, which I'm yeah. really sad that we are blacked out of uh, <laughs> Grizzlies games right now because John no. Morant is something to watch. Yeah. yeah, no, Memphis does make sense because uh, actually the St. Louis Hawks, they did play a number of exhibition games in Memphis uh, mm. during the mid-60s. So like they would, like during the season, I shouldn't say exhibition, they would play uh, neutral side games. They would like mm-hmm. schedule those games in Memphis, try to get more uh, ticket revenue. But, yeah. Did the Kansas City Kings ever do that? Because I know they played a lot of games in Omaha. Um, the Kings, to my knowledge, did not go to um, Memphis. I meant to St. Louis. I, yeah, 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 St. Louis. Um, actually, I do not know, mm-hmm. but I veered towards, they may have done like a few games, maybe mm-hmm. in the preseason, but I don't, I would venture to say, don't quote me on this, or like, don't hold me to it. But I would venture to say they didn't do any neutral side games during the season because by the mid-70s, the NBA had tried to cut that out because the NBA was like, we need to be major league. So, like, we will play all our home games in our actual home cities. No more of this kind of barnstorming tactic of we're going to play a home game in Memphis or a home game in Evansville, Indiana. Um, Sorry, that came to mind because I was thinking of the Chicago Bulls. Like when they had Jerry Sloan and Jerry Sloan was from Evansville, Indiana, they were like, hey, let's go play a game in Evansville. That'll get the locals out. They'll <laughs> love to see Jerry back in town. But um, mm-hmm. that's the kind of Bush League stuff the NBA would do through the late 60s. And they finally cut it out in the 70s. 
Mm-hmm. So, so we could try to look it up, but I, I sincerely doubt they played any uh, games in uh, St. Louis, the, the Kansas City Kings. Well, and Curtis, given this lack of professional hoops in St. Louis for the, you know, the past 50 years almost, uh, perhaps it's no surprise to you that um, basketball hoops do not exist in our city's premier park. Uh, Forest Park, which is, of course, you know, the focus of the project that Noah and I have been working on this past year, um, a park that, you know, often boasts that it's larger than Central Park in New York City, you know, 1,300 acres, 13 million visitors a year, um, multiple cultural destinations and institutions, uh, sports galore, but um, not now and not ever, um, basketball, um, I, I take it that's not a surprise to you, I guess, given that um, you've noted St. Louis seems to be a graveyard <laughs> for professional <laughs> basketball. Um, do you see, I mean, is there that direct of a relationship to you in terms of the history of hoops in St. Louis and, and the lack of courts? And again, this kind of premier uh, public space in the city and, and really in the region. I wouldn't make that that explicit direct connection. Cause like there are, there are plenty of places that love basketball that don't have pro basketball. So, um, you know, again, just to think about, you know, Syracuse, you know, a team that had a pro pro franchise for, you know, a long time. Uh, they lost the Syracuse nationals back in 1963, but they love college basketball. They love the, the Syracuse uh, orange men up there. And so uh, there's no reason why St. Louis, you know, obviously the college scene in St. Louis is not quite the same as Syracuse, but, like you don't need to have that level of love for college basketball or pro basketball to have basketball goals at a park. Like um, <laughs> there's a park, you know, three blocks down my down the street from my house here, and they, they got there's basketball goals. Although I live in D.C., so like <laughs> uh, right. maybe basketball is just much bigger in D.C. to St. Louis. But like uh, I would think um, a park like that, they have such uh, so many other kind of amenities. Let's say. Uh, that a park that large, you would find a room for a couple of basketball goals um, at least. So I think that might speak more to connotations of what basketball represents and not actually what basketball is, because uh, basketball is played all kinds of areas, uh, rural and urban, um, mm-hmm. which I think is one of the the great beauties of basketball, which is what I wrote about in my uh, master's thesis is that like, you know, wasn't the point of the thesis, probably something I mentioned in it where I was like, now, basketball is, you know, I'm not an expert on every single sport, but like the sports I'm intimate with, like basketball is the only one where you get, it's easy to play in a rural environment or an urban environment. You can play by yourself or with other people. Um, uh, fully able bodied people can play it. Uh, people who are not fully able bodied can play it. Like folks in wheelchairs play basketball. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's, it's a sport that so easily defies uh, stereotypes and um, whatever connotation you want to give to it. it. It can appeal to all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, women play basketball. So like uh, women play basketball, like, which is unusual for most modern sports. Like men play basketball for the first time in December, 1891. Women play basketball for the first time in January, 1892. So like just a month later, women start playing basketball. So there's no reason why they should not have basketball goals in a, in a park of that size if they have other sporting amenities in a park. So, yeah, thank you for articulating that. That's something that we're constantly trying to do is that basketball is so much more that in, in the landscape of St. Louis, it seems to be based on this stereotype about basketball being for black men. If you look at the, the 
the website for the St. Louis Parks Department. It has a page that shows you where all the basketball hoops are. And uh, I would say 80% of them are on the north side of the city, which is north of the red line, which is the black part of the city. Um, and uh, Forest Park is south of that red line in the you know, supposedly white part of the city. And black people use the park. And John and I have been to the park and, and interviewed people of all uh, ethnicities and and uh, most of the white people were like, huh, I wonder why there's no, I never realized that. <laughs> and all of the black people we spoke to were like, it's because they don't want black people congregating in the park. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, it's, it's as natural to them yeah. uh, given their life experience. And, and well, you know, well, you so, know just, let me just quick, quickly mention too, like the park I mentioned just down the street from my home, like there's basket, like the, it's divided in half by a pub, by a street. So like the park is in two, but like on one mm-hmm. side, there's the park that has uh, the basketball goals and there's also a soccer field then on the other side of the street there are tennis courts so like <laughs> and uh black and white people play in a tennis court so like i know the idea is like you know white people play tennis but like my neighborhood in dc like black and white people are out there playing tennis at that tennis court in that public That's park good. so um and uh now i will admit like from what i've noticed it's primarily black people that use the basketball court but like uh, doesn't mean that you should not have a basketball court at a public park. Like uh, all the public should be allowed to go through the park and to use the park and should be encouraged to use the park. So if that, if that happens to mean that more black people will go to the park, that should be a good thing. That means more citizens of your right. city, your community actually going Absolutely. to use this public facility. So uh, yeah, sorry for that, but that, that's my, that's my thought on it. No, thank you. I mean, I know you you played some basketball, mm-hmm. uh, at least recreationally. It does seem, um, I don't know, to what degree our efforts have contributed to this, but it does seem that there is some movement toward installing um, hoops in the park as soon as uh, 2023. And we're really excited about that and we wanna push the ball forward for that. Um, they think they know the site where they're gonna put it and it's not far from the tennis courts, <laughs> I think for surveillance reasons, but that's a whole other issue. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you as a basketball historian, as a basketball player, um, someone who loves basketball, um, if you were dreaming up a brand new outdoor courts facilities, what, what are must haves for you? What, what do you want in your basketball uh, uh, landscape? What would you like to see and, and play on? Wow. Um, definitely have it covered. That's number one. Um, just for people to get some shade. So during the sun, especially in the summertime, you don't want the sun beating down on you uh, straight up like that. So definitely some sort of canopy to cover the court. Um, don't have those don't have double rim double double rims mm. uh, the double iron rims oh, I, yeah. those are the worst like <laughs> if you're like oh you gotta be a pure shooter out here it's like no you have like oh, this goes beyond pure shooting they have to like swish every single shot this is ridiculous um so no double rims high quality rims not double rim um have some nice nets uh not chain like actual like nylon or uh some sort of cloth net um I, I hate the sound of chain nets. That's just me personally. Uh, also, people's hands get caught in the chain nets. Those aren't, that's not pretty if that happens. Um, um, some seating around the court too uh, would, would be nice. So not just the players, but like you can have people spectating if need be, or if they're not playing, they have somewhere to actually sit as they wait their turn. Um, so a lot of this is me thinking about my own court I played on growing up uh, in suburban Houston, uh, which had white and black and actually Latino people also used that course. So that mm-hmm. was fun. Um, then lastly, the court itself should not be solid concrete. Like mm-hmm. have some sort of surface that uh, is easy on the knees and ankles of players. 
Uh, I know they have some sort of composite or synthetic uh, materials they're, they're using now. So like, I would hope the city doesn't just, you know, just drop down a bunch of concrete because um, that, that is going to be awful on people's knees and uh, ankles. Uh, just from pure running. And of course, if you fall mm -hmm. on it, that's another uh, horrible issue. But uh, mm -hmm. some sort of composite material for the court would be awesome, too. That sounds wonderful. I'm, I'm all on board for all those things. Thank you so much, Curtis, for joining us and lending your your expansive knowledge and wisdom on basketball history. This is so has been so thrilling for me. Um, you're such a gifted storyteller, too. I just love to, to listen to you uh, tell these stories. I'm sure our audience will really appreciate uh, learning more about the history of basketball in St. Louis. It's been a, a real pleasure. Judging by the basics, y'all already comfortable stuck up in the matrix.